This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. The CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce, Jerry McCartney, has written a letter to the City Council, and you can see more about that at 980cfpl.ca. In fact, if you want to read details, please go there. But we had a chance to catch up with Jerry earlier today and ask him about it, and he gave us his perspective, budget-wise, on where things sit right now. Well, a particularly tough time uh, this go-around because they're facing a lot more pressures with provincial downloading than they have in, in some previous years. Nevertheless, I think they can still get to that magical line uh, below 3%. This has been a, a recommendation the Chamber's had for a number of years. Uh, any number c- that combines to include uh, inflation and population growth, which we estimate hovers around 1.5%, 1.4% per year, and inflation under 2 uh, that gets you to that 3% line. And they're presently talking uh, in and around the 4% number, but I'm confident they're going to be able to get lower than that. We had a couple of recommendations in our uh, proposal to the city, as we do each year. Uh, and one of them, and we're del- delighted actually to to learn from uh, Josh Morgan, that uh, our recommendation to consider uh, disposing of city-owned properties and, and operations that they have that are perhaps marginal, uh, don't make a lot of profit, need to be subsidized, could be sold for a profit, and that money, of course, go to towards the budget. Things like golf courses, uh, uh, tennis clubs, etc., that they operate uh, pro- uh, as a municipal operation that could otherwise be operated by the private sector. And I'm delighted to learn that, that KPMG has been commissioned to do a full study on city-owned properties and come back with a report and recommendations uh, as to whether or not they should hold on to these properties or dispose of them. So I'm looking forward to that report. Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about big stuff. When you're talking city-owned golf courses, this is is something that's kind of been there on the back burner for a a little while, hasn't it? It has been, and we learned uh, just a couple of weeks ago that Brantford, in fact, uh, has uh, moved to sell their municipally-owned golf course. So it's not something new. Uh, you might ask, why are we in these businesses in the first place? Uh, sure, there's, there's, uh, for instance, lots of tennis courts in the in the city that uh, are part of our parks plan. But should we be operating actual tennis clubs? That yes, they're affordable, uh, but they they compete because they're subsidized. They're they're much lower prices than private clubs. And you have to ask, is that fair? So things like golf courses and tennis clubs, et cetera, need to be addressed in this KPMG report. We are talking with the CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce, Jerry McCartney, and we're looking ahead at London's budget and talk of increases. And, Jerry, you mentioned kind of more of a conservative increase. There are people who say, you know, let's just bite the bullet one year. Let's just, let's pump in a 45 5.5% increase. Let's just do it. What would be kind of the concern of going in that direction in your estimation? Uh, we like to call it addiction, so... And not to use that term loosely, but you can get addicted to those kinds of numbers as a municipal councillor. If, if one year we pass a four or five percent increase, uh, and, and you know nobody gets shot or, or run over as a result, next year you kind of say to yourself, "Hey, maybe we can get away with that again." Uh, well, you shouldn't, and, and nor should we attempt to do that. So we we prefer. We know there's going to be increases. There is to every business and every operation in the country. Uh, we think inflation and population growth adequately address that. Doesn't need to go higher than that. 
and so if we start going the other way, that's problematic. We've also heard calls, as you have, uh, for zero base budgeting. In other words, no tax increases whatsoever. And municipalities have tried this in this country uh, for a couple of years in a row. And while it sounds good on the surface, three or four years later, they have an 18% property tax increase. So you, you've just postponed the inevitable by doing that. And that 18% pain uh, is is something we just can't accommodate as as taxpayers. That always sounds like one of those politician tricks where if you do the math and you think, well, wait a minute, if we could do two years of zero increases, then we hit an election and then ah, we'll get back in. Everybody will be happy. But then you're right. The next time around, eventually you get whomped in all of this. Now, At some point, you got to pay, Mike. We all know that. Jerry, as far as the timing here, is there enough time, do you think, to get things like reports done to make some big-time decisions? Because they do want to have this wrapped up kind of in March, right? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know that they will. Um, frankly, I would rather uh, KPMG take their time and do it right and do it well, uh, as opposed to some you know quick and dirty job that gets done and doesn't really get to the the bottom of the uh, the details and the answers that we need. So uh, I don't know the answer to that. I'm hopeful that they can. If they can't, I'd rather it be uh, more fulsome and, and uh, well done than, than done in a hurry. If we look at things like LTC, policing, how all of those factor in, how do you see that kind of playing out, kind of the, the big ticket items that are always there? Well, they'll tell you each year that they're they're short of funds, and I've I've been here for almost 20 years now, and can't remember a year that that any of those uh, agencies or organizations didn't ask for more money. Uh, and I get it, costs go up, but they should be again uh, associated with that number that that less than three percent number, which takes into account inflation. Anything more than that is just not not reasonable nor affordable. And so I think they all need to toe that same line. Well, we'll see if that does happen. We'll see how the deliberations go. We've got a public participation meeting that is up next Thursday at 4 p.m. at City Hall where people can kind of bring their own concerns or bring their own ideas, and we'll see what happens. But, you know, thank you for kind of sparking some of the conversation on this, Jerry, to to maybe get some brainstorming going between now and then. Yeah, I hope so. I think if you look at the the city-owned properties, like the province of Ontario has done, uh, they, they've got tons of uh, facilities and properties around the province uh, that are just, frankly, sitting there collecting dust. But yet we have to pay for the hydro, the heat, the insurance, et cetera, to keep them operating. Uh, they've made some really good moves to dispense or dispose of those properties. I think London can do the same. Yeah. And at the same time, I mean, we look at whether it's hydro or whether it's some of the other, you know, big things that the province might have at their disposal or things that other municipalities might have. You almost want to hoard that away for a rainy day. Are we at a rainy day? Well, you know, you would hope that these surpluses that we generate each year, uh, some of those monies could be put away for rainy day purposes. And and the time to do that is when, when the, uh, the sun's shining, when you've got the most money to do it with. Uh, inevitably, there's downturns in the economy. There always has been, always will be. Uh, and as I advised the federal government yesterday, uh, with the state of uh, indebtedness that we have and the deficit that we keep incurring, there's no plan uh, for the federal government to eliminate that deficit. What happens then when uh, that downturn occurs? We have national emergencies or disasters to look after. We don't have the money to do it with. Jerry, thanks so much for the time today. Always a pleasure, Mike. 
Dan Krause is a senior conservation biologist with the Nature Conservancy of Canada. And we talked to him earlier and kind of said it as if you walk outside and see a skunk or a raccoon or an opossum, your first reaction is always, hey, get out of here, go, get. But those little guys and other wild animals probably need to be appreciated. You know, many of them are. The urban wildlife that's coming back into our, our cities uh, is there because we're providing habitat for them. And in some places, it's habitat where we, we like to see them in some of, along some of our rivers or our parks. Uh, but in some cases, around our homes, we're creating habitat. And that could be by doing things like leaving our garbage can lids off or, uh, or just leaving pet food outside, things that attract them around our homes. So let's talk about what is best for the animals. Is it best that we don't attract them into our habitat, or is this just becoming a coexistence? It, it is. It is a coexistence. You know, nature has been returning to Canadian cities, um, and that really is part of a, a good news story. Uh, the quality of the the air and the water and the land in our cities is much better than it was. You know, when I was a kid, like thirty years ago. Uh, but we do want to make sure that we're, we remember that they are wild animals. and we're, we're taking precautions like not feeding them, um, making sure that they're not getting into our garbage, and, and just kind of giving them the respect that, that they deserve. And it really is a great opportunity because as more and more Canadians are moving into cities, uh, it's a great gateway for, for kids and people to learn about uh, the wild animals that we have in Canada. Well, then let's take a few minutes and just learn a little bit about what some of the, the wild urban animals, which sounds a little bit wrong, but it's not an oxymoron, it's a thing. The wild urban animals are actually doing for us. What positives are we seeing from them? Well, you know, certainly um, animals like, like skunks, for example, people kind of drive them nuts when the skunks start digging up their lawn. But those skunks are actually performing a, a service, and they're removing uh, grubs that live in our, our lawns. And that's a, a service that many animals provide in terms of pest control. Coyotes are another great example. I mean, part of the reason why we have coyotes in cities is because they're eating things like rats and mice and helping to control rodent populations. There's really kind of two groups of wild animals in cities. There's, there's ones that are very uh, adaptive, and they can live in an urban environment. So coyotes, skunks, raccoons, squirrels, um, things that are actually have learned to live with, with humans. But we're also seeing this other group of animals coming in, um, would include some bird species, like things like Cooper's hawk, or even many of our cities have birds like peregrine falcons, um, that really a few years ago almost would have been unheard of. But they're also adapting to the urban environment. We're also welcoming, welcoming them back into our, our cities. And right there, I mean, that's, that's good news, right? It is, you know, and in a world where more and more of us are living in cities uh, and possibly becoming a bit detached from nature, um, urban wildlife really is a way for, for us to, to learn and be reminded about the uh, the natural world that is around us. And, you know, some people do that by, by feeding birds, which is a great way um, to connect with nature, but also just learning about the, the wild animals that live in our cities and just how incredibly adaptive they are. Um, I mean, you take something like a, a coyote, that originally 200 years ago, um, it was a, a prairie species, but it's actually moved east and has really followed people because it's adapted to the habitats that we create. Dan Krause joining us, senior conservation biologist with the Nature Conservancy of Canada. As we look at urban wildlife, when you walk out and you see a skunk, don't worry, they're eating the grubs, they're actually helping your lawn, but at the same time, we got to remember, 
they are not our cats and dogs. Uh, do we wind up maybe missing the boat sometimes when you see animals in your neighborhood thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going to make friends with that raccoon. He and I are going to be good buds one day. Probably not uh, the best plan of action. No, they, they are still wild animals. And, you know, certainly some some animals like uh, can carry rabies and you do want to be careful around them. They're, they're wild animals. Give them their space. Um, do your best not to attract them with things like, like garbage and pet food. And just enjoy the fact that as Canadians, you know, we can see these animals within our urban environments and use them as, a, as an opportunity to learn more about the, the great nature that we have here in Canada. Is it true that, for instance... You know, you look at some animals, they could eat an animal that maybe is infected with a certain disease and, and that disease kind of goes away. It doesn't affect that animal and maybe it makes it less likely that, that we could get it. Yeah, you know, that's, that's possible. And, and certainly that is a, a role that some predators play is that they, they do tend to pick off animals that are, are diseased or, or old uh, and can help to control diseases within within populations. Um, but, but, you know, they do, animals do play an important role in cities in terms of uh, managing populations of, as I said, you know, things like, like rodents uh, and insects that maybe, you know, where we find undesirable around our homes. Interesting. Well, we really appreciate, Dan, you taking the time to talk urban wildlife with us. So do clean up the garbage, but don't worry when you see an animal outside the door or in the yard or that sort of thing. Yep, give them uh, give them their space, respect them, and uh, and just appreciate them. Dan, have a great day. You too. Thank you. We have with us PMA manager Bruce Hayward, and he's been nice enough to bring along John McPherson, who is the Scotch ambassador with PMA. We have Aaron, who is here from De Serrano, that's, is there a better name, and Tia Maria. And then we have Stan the Vodka Man. You can't go wrong when you are anywhere. Can we go out and, and party later? Because Stan the Vodka Man, you cannot have a bad night if you are with Stan the Vodka Man. Stan, can we start with you? How did you I become th- Stan the Vodka Man? Uh, Polish blood, Polish vodka, easy breezy, my friend. I like it. I like it a lot. Okay, well, we'll talk about some vodka in just a little minute, but Bruce Hayward is with us, PMA manager, and I like things, and I, I think I fall into a category where a lot of people think, yeah, you know what, I, I kind of like rye, or I kind of like rum, or oh, I like a little bit of yogurt every once in a while, but we know nothing about it. What is the best way to kind of figure out what it is that you are drinking, or, or what you might like, or, or how it's made, all those things? Well, this is luckily a great show that uh, the Western Fair puts on that gives you an opportunity to kind of walk around and sample some different brands and stuff that you might not want to go out and purchase a 26-ounce bottle and you get a sample and get to find out if you like it or not. And luckily for, for the customers coming tonight, we actually have the PMA lounge that we set up. So we actually have Glenn Fedick there. We have the Disarona Tia Maria. We have Vivarova Vodka. We brought Two Oceans Wine for the people that just want to do wine. And then we have some Jagermeister that are it's, they're gearing up for Thursday night. They have Saturday off, or Friday off, I mean. <laughs> and don't mind going out and having a few drinks responsibly mm-hmm. and uh, making sure they get home safely. But that's how we kind of look at it. So sample sizes, you get to find out what you like, and then you can go to your local LCBO after and say, I really like that, the show, and I want to pick it up. So this is the place tonight, tomorrow, and Saturday are the days. Okay, then, then we're set. We're good. Well, then let's start learning about a few things. Aaron, let's kind of start with you. 
DiSerrano. For anybody who hasn't tried this, how do we describe it to them? DiSerrano is the original amaretto. It's an almond-flavored liqueur. DiSerrano is actually made without any almonds, so if you have a nut allergy, you don't have to worry. They actually use the aromatic oils of apricot pits along with other botanicals. So it's got that marzipan almond type sweetness to it. It's delicious. And so how is this best served? Because a guy like me can go and say, you know, I had some of that Di Sorono and, and I like the name and I got a bottle and I'm bringing it home. I have no clue how this is supposed to be served. So what do you do? You can make any number of cocktails with it or just a little bit of fresh lemon juice and some club soda. It's really, really refreshing. Low ABV, healthy. So healthy. Yeah. Ah, I like that. Okay, so in doing that, in bringing something like that home, I didn't even think you could mix kind of like things like an amaretto. I didn't, I didn't think that went with anything else. I thought that was just it on its own, and it was either with ice or without. Well, I mean, you can have it that way, but, it, yeah, it makes fabulous cocktails. There's the godfather. goes back to the 1970s, which is scotch and amaretto. So, you know, maybe if you talk to John and I nicely, we can, we can make that happen. <laughs> Okay, I'm, I'm very interested so far. Now, Tia Maria as well. That's something else you specialize in. What is Tia Maria? Tia Maria is a cold brew coffee liqueur. It's Arabica coffee, cold brewed, Jamaican rum, Madagascar vanilla. That's it. Put it all together? Put it all together. Again, fabulous in cocktails. You can put it in coffee. Uh, I might be making up some espresso martinis around here if that's your thing. So <laughs> come on by. So you guys are working the lounge a little later on, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is good. Okay. So Di Sorono, Tia Maria. Let's move now to Stan the Vodka Man. Stan, we know that your Polish heritage has helped to get you into vodka, but let's look at the explosion of vodka in the last little while. It used to be vodka, and it came from this country or this country, and that was about it. It was made by this company or this company. Then all of a sudden, we started to see the market get all crazy with flavors and all sorts of things. What has happened in vodka over the last few years? Uh, vodka has exploded. still the most popular spirit in North America. Uh, I represent Luxusova and Viborova. We're uh, pouring Luxusova, a wonderful potato vodka here at the show. And what we try and uh, highlight is the heritage, the quality, the history. We always say uh, if you know the culture of Poland, you know the vodka of Poland. Okay, that's good. I like that. So in terms of how we appreciate vodka, because it's one thing for someone to say, I'd like a vodka soda, or I'd like a martini, but how do we truly appreciate a good vodka? Uh, appreciate it uh, any way you like it. <laughs> uh, my motto, as long as you're drinking my product, I'm okay with that. But truly, to appreciate vodka is room temperature. Uh, a good vodka should always warm. It should never burn. Okay, so always warm, never burn. And what what would that refer to then? That's oh, the flavor as it's going down. If a spirit burns going down, you know it's a little inferior. Really? So, absolutely. Uh, you'll, you'll hear it in the liquor business. It's all about quality and a good spirit, whether it's scotch, whether it's amaretto, uh, whether it's gin, should always warm and should never burn going down. See? Told you. Master's class as we talk with the guys from PMA and we talk about some of the spirits available. They have their lounge that you can find and it looks very comfortable. I don't even know if you guys have finished setting it up, but Bruce, that look that looks like a place I could crash. Well, the nicest thing about people be able to find it is it's right beside the chorus lounge. <laughs> We're like attached to the chorus lounge. We're going to see each other a lot in the next few days. Yeah. We are here at the Wine and Food Show at the Agriplex at West 
Western Fair, and we are talking with people who are going to be making this the great show that it is every year, even before they start doing that. And we have our master's class, our London Live, very condensed master's class, going on spirits and vodka. And now, why don't we get to scotch? I think we could we could have a whole master's class on scotch. John McPherson is here. So, okay, single malt. Um... That's about where my scotch knowledge stops. Fair John, enough. help me out. What, what else do I need to know to be able to enjoy scotch? Uh, so I'm with uh, Glenn Fittick today. We're, we're pouring the 12-year, the 14-year, 15-year, as well as our experimental series. Uh, and that's for the single malt area, but you've also got blended scotch. Uh, we've got Grants. We've got Black Bottle. We've got a great variety of blended scotches, as, long, as well as your single malts. Uh, and we've even got one blended malt, Monkey Shoulder. But uh, this weekend, we're, we're, we're pouring Glenn Fittick and, and having a good time with it. Good stuff. So blended. What is blended? What are you blending? Uh, you can blend a variety of things. It's usually a malted barley mixed with a grain whiskey, um, and it can come from any number of distilleries. It can come from 25 different distilleries. It can come from only four. Uh, as long as there's more than one single malt and a grain whiskey in there, it's a blended scotch. And if it's a blend of just malted barleys, then it's a blended malt. Now, as we were talking with Aaron and as we were talking with Stan, you could take amaretto, you could take Tia Maria, you could mix it with anything, you can take vodka, you can mix it with just about anything. We're on to scotch. Do I want to be dumping anything near it? Or whoa, 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 whoa. We, we, this, is, this is scotch. We drink it pure. We drink it from the bottle. And that's how we do it? Stan and I get along in the sense that drink your whiskey the way you want to drink your whiskey. If you want to drink it neat, by all means, enjoy. But if you want to add a little water, if you want to have some Glenfiddich 12 with a little soda water and a tall glass, have the Glenfiddich highball, you'll get to enjoy a lot of those great flavors like the Williams pear and Glenfiddich that some of the people that aren't used to drinking a single malt straight won't be able to find out of that. Now I'm going to rewind a little bit. You said drinking it fine. Yes. Uh, sorry, you can have it either neat out of the bottle, which neat. is kind of a, yes. Okay, drinking it neat. Yes, and that's just no ice, bottle into glass, into mouth. Okay, and then what are some other ways to do it? What if you put ice on it? What's that? Uh, you can have it on the rocks, totally up to you. You can start to have those uh, different waters coming out and mixing with the oils within the scotch, bringing new flavors, bringing new scents out of it. Uh, it'll cool it down a little bit. Uh, as uh, Stan said, things can get a little bit warm with drinking whiskey, and you can enjoy it a little bit cooler that way. Uh, but water, soda water, if you want to make cocktails with it, absolutely. Our Glenfiddich 14 Bourbon Barrel Reserve makes a mean old-fashioned. And typically, how long is scotch aged before you say, yeah, ready to go? In order to be legally called a scotch whiskey, it has to be at least three years aged in oak barrels. Uh, the youngest one we've got today is our Glenfiddich 12-year. Uh, so we've got that really nice 12-year, the 14-year steps it up a little bit age-wise, and then our 15-year Solera Reserve is, uh, is being featured, as well as our experimental series, which are non-age statements, uh, in which case we're not looking for a certain age, we're looking for a certain flavor. Nice. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the education, John. This is all available at the PMA Lounge for you to come and sample. Bruce, before we let you go, uh, Jägermeister. How popular is Jägermeister these days? Jägermeister is uh, very popular, as you can find it at your local establishments. Uh, we also will have it at retail, at LCBOs. And uh, Jägermeister just launched in Canada a new product, and we'll be sampling the mix of it here at the show. It is actually with cold brew coffee. So it's uh, part Jägermeister with cold brew coffee put together, and it is fantastic. Like, it is really good, and uh, we'll be showcasing it, uh, it over the next three days, too, at our, at our booth. What do you think caused Jägermeister to catch on the way it did? I mean, we're going back decades now, but what do you think is the attraction to it? 
I, I think it's kind of the, the German with the, you know, the, the commercials have done a really good job and just something different, right? At the time, it was a, it, liqueurs weren't as big when it started out in the LCBO and then started gaining traction, and it just kept on from there and has a worldwide phenomenon with Jagermeister. That's, and it's got 56 herbs and spices, that's right? That's what we always yeah. hear. You do, it's like the health drink. Yeah, Something yeah. in there has got to yeah. be making me healthier. Helps your tummy. Nice. Anything else we need to know, Bruce? Just that uh, these three fine gentlemen will be here all weekend working the booth. Uh, John has a scotch presentation uh, that people can sign up for Thursday night and Friday night. And Aaron is doing one on Thursday or on Saturday night. Uh, in the, they can sign up for the, I don't know what they call it, tasting room. The one with the red. I yeah, couldn't yeah. get in there. Yeah, now so, I know what's going to be yeah, there. Yeah, so okay. they'll be there and they can sign up and, and learn even more in a detail to get the sample some scotches or sample some different cocktails. And also the other interesting at our booth is we will be learning how to make cocktails. So Aaron will be showing people how to make these cocktails at home so they can not just come to the show and go, oh, I had this great cocktail and I can't remember. I got friends over. But he's going to actually show how to make it actually. So you can take that home and have friends over and have cocktails. That is outstanding. You don't hand somebody a drink and they take a sip and it seems to take them three hours yeah. to drink it because you've made it wrong. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been there. I've been that guy handing over the drink. I need to take that class. I'm signing up. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.